I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we continue our thrilling Candidates and the Constitution series, in which we're comparing the statements and proposals of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to the text and the history of the Constitution. We now turn to Article 5, which establishes the process for amending the Constitution. To propose an amendment, and of course you can get the text on the wonderful interactive Constitution, which is now available on an app for download. To amend the Constitution, you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress or a national convention called by two-thirds of the state legislatures. And then to ratify it, you need three-quarters of state legislatures or conventions. And joining me to discuss the important question of constitutional change and the 2016 election are two leading scholars who have contributed many essays to the interactive constitution, including the uh, joint explainer for Article 5, which will be live and online soon. Michael Rappaport is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law and Director of the Study of Constitutional Originalism at the University of San Diego. He co-wrote an explainer on Article 5 with David Strauss, which will soon be up on live. Uh, and he wrote an individual explainer, um, as well as uh, one on Article 7 with Mark Graber. And David Strauss is Gerald Ratner, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. In addition to the Article 5 explainers, David wrote pieces on Article 2 with Richard Garnett. Mike, David, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Pleasure. Wonderful. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, we know that the 2016 GOP and Democratic Party platforms both call for constitutional amendments. The Republican platform says, we support a human life amendment to the Constitution and legislation to make clear the 14th Amendment's protection applied to children before birth. And the Democratic platform says, after 240 years, we will finally enshrine the rights of women in the Constitution by passing the Equal Rights Amendment. Mike, let's begin with you. The Republican platform has been calling for a right to life amendment since the 1970s, but it hasn't passed. What does that say about the process of constitutional change and how seriously is the party, in fact, committed to uh, unborn child amendment? Well, uh, what it says about the process for constitutional change is that uh, the Constitution establishes a pretty strict process for passing constitutional amendments. You, and you, you went over the, the, the basic provisions of it. Um, the upshoot of the whole thing is that you need a consensus in the country in favor of constitutional change. So on something like right to life, um, there, there certainly isn't a consensus of the country in favor of constitutional change. And so you're the unable at this time to get a right to life amendment. If you look through our history, there have been periods of time when you initially had a controversial uh, proposal, and then people worked, and over time, uh, opinions changed, and you were actually able to get, um, subsequently, a constitutional amendment on a matter. But at this point, um, however strongly the, the Republicans are in favor of, of right-to-life amendment, it's not going to happen. But you never know about the future. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, well, uh, David, similar question to you. The Democratic Party has called for an equal rights amendment 
uh, all the way back to 1944, according to our crack constitutional research team. Uh, what does it say that that amendment uh, hasn't passed, given the stronger support for an equal rights amendment? Jeff, I think my answer is going to be sort of the opposite of what Mike said about the human rights amendment. I agree with what he said, but when you get to the equal rights amendment, equal rights for equal rights for women, I think one way to look at it is it's already passed. I mean, it hasn't officially passed. It's not in the printed text of the Constitution, but the law has evolved to the point where it's really hard to identify anything that the proponents of the Equal Rights Amendment have wanted over the years that hasn't been adopted by the Supreme Court as a matter of constitutional interpretation or just sort of adopted by the country as a whole as a matter of political culture and some things that it's just not thinkable to do. The time the Equal Rights Amendment was first proposed, you had things like women school teachers in public schools were paid on a different wage scale from male teachers. If you're being men were more likely to be the head of the household, no one would even think about doing that these days. So I think the reason that the Equal Rights Amendment hasn't gotten passed, probably won't be passed, is there's no work left for it to be done. And if it, if it were to get revived, it would mostly be as a symbolic gesture at this point to ratify things that have already happened. Um, thank you for that. Well, let's turn to the candidates themselves. Uh, Hillary Clinton has made an anti-Citizens United amendment a key part of her uh, program. She said, uh, I will, in my first 30 days as president, propose a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United and give the American people the chance to reclaim our democracy. Donald Trump uh, has provoked debate about the constitutional status of birthright citizenship by saying that uh, undocumented uh, uh, mothers who have kids on U.S. soil uh, don't have U.S. citizenship. He said, I don't think they have U.S. citizenship. And if you speak to some very, very good lawyers that I know, some would disagree, but many of them agree with me, you're going to find they do not have American citizenship. Mike, starting with Trump's proposal, which stirred a debate about whether a constitutional amendment would be required to deny birthright citizenship to children in that situation, uh, do you think a constitutional amendment is required, and uh, and how has Trump uh, contributed to that debate? Well, you know, it, it's uh, it's an interesting question. Is, is, is a constitutional amendment required? Uh, another way to put that is, does the Constitution now require birthright citizenship? And I think, like with many issues, it largely turns on what your interpretive approach is to the Constitution. Now, I'm an originalist. I think you ought to follow the original meaning of the Constitution. And in my view, the original meaning of the Constitution does require birthright citizenship. So um, if Donald Trump um, opposes birthright citizenship, then um, you have to go through a constitutional amendment uh, to do that. Now, if you believe in a, a different approach to, to interpreting the Constitution, if you're a non-originalist, and, and since as, as follows from the term non-originalist, it says you, what you're not. It doesn't exactly say what you're in favor of. But the different versions of non-originalism that look to a variety of things, um, there's often a great deal more uh, discretion on the part of the interpreter because they're not limited um, uh, to, to the original meaning of the Constitution. And I would say um, uh, it's more complicated now because some of the kinds of considerations that non-originalists make uh, arguments that they make for interpreting the Constitution um, might actually point in favor of 
non-birthright citizenship. So uh, there's been a, if you look to the other countries of the world, most countries do not have birthright citizenship. Some that had it have moved away from it. You could make policy arguments, um, uh, value-type arguments on both sides of this issue, so you can certainly make them um, in favor of non-birthright citizenship. So um, to sum it up, I think the original meaning points pretty clearly towards birthright citizenship. A non-originalist interpretation uh, depends on uh, the approach one takes and who the interpreter is. Very interesting. David, uh, I think it perhaps fair to call you a non-originalist. Do you agree with Mike that a non-originalist might end up uh, denying birthright citizenship? Well, I mean, non-originalists might... I mean, my basic view is everybody is a non-originalist, The people who claim to be originalists end up because originalism is such an uh, indeterminate theory itself. A lot of them end up being non-originalists despite themselves. Of course, that's a bigger debate. Um, and I'd also say that even if even if people claim to be originalists, the original meaning of things is very often not clear. And an originalist might even might easily say, "No, no, no, I'm an originalist. I've looked at the original materials, and they do not support birthright citizenship." The fact is, the landscape has changed so much since the relevant constitutional provision was adopted, as far as the nature of immigration, the legal restraints on immigration, the way we treat immigrants and non-citizens in the country. Landscape has changed so much, it's really very difficult to carry over the original understandings. What a non-originalist view would allow you to do, though, is forthrightly to say, here's why I think birthright citizenship is a good and valuable thing. It would also allow you forthrightly to say, look, it's been our tradition. Whatever the original understandings was, this is the point we've arrived at as a society. We've endorsed it over the years, and those are important constitutional considerations. Now, could people argue against those? Sure, they could and they will. But I think just to, to kind of cast in terms of originalists would be unequivocally on one side and non-originalists likely on the other. I'm not, not that Mike did that, but I think that sort of suggestion about the debate, I think, is really not right. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, so, Mike, uh, I, I mentioned Hillary Clinton's uh, support for an amendment to overturn Citizens United. Uh, first, tell us, is this a purely partisan issue? After all, a poll suggested that 80 percent of Americans disapproved of Citizens United when it came down, and that included some people on both sides of the aisle. So could you imagine support on the R side for an anti-Citizens United amendment? And, and what do you think its prospects for passage are? Um, well, some of the anti-Citizens United, I mean, in part you have to define what we're, we're, what are we talking about when we're talking about Citizens United. Are we talking about um, do corporations have free speech rights, um, or is it sort of more general term for, for allowing Congress to engage in uh, regulation of campaign finance uh, in ways that they're now prevented from doing so by a Supreme Court decision. So um, I'm not sure the answer changes one way or the other on that, but um, uh, there, there, there's a sort of uh, unclearness about what exactly uh, goes under the rubric of an anti-citizens uh, united approach. Um, I'm, I'm not very good at predicting where the uh, country is going to be on issues. Uh, <laughs> uh, so right now, I think they're, they're divided. Um, I I don't follow the, the, the opinion polls on that. I, I'd be surprised if 
if 80% uh, today were, were, were saying that. And, and, and even more importantly, once there was a debate about it, once we, we got into the issue of, of, um, of, of the Congress, for example, deciding whether to enact this or not, the debate would, would get more uh, involved and, and people would perhaps change their minds. At this point, though, I, I, I certainly don't think there's um, the consensus on on these matters that would get us a, a, a change in um, the current law through constitutional amendments. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, David, on the Citizens United uh, Amendment, uh, what can it teach us about the process of constitutional change? It does seem to be the amendment that on the progressive side has the strongest support at the moment. I think it does, although there are two things about that part of Hillary Clinton's website that I think are very revealing. One is if you look at what she says about campaign finance, the first thing she says is, I will appoint judges who will make sure that ordinary Americans, I'm paraphrasing, but I will appoint judges who will make sure that ordinary Americans get a voice and our elections are not dominated by billionaires. And then, having said that, she then says, I will propose a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And I think the ranking is revealing that the way we were, the more likely way we're going to get this done by far is by appointing judges who will interpret the Constitution in her view correctly. Uh, and then the constitutional amendment comes in second. The second revealing thing, and this is a, the important point that Mike just made very well, you talk about overruling Citizens United. It's not even clear what that means exactly. Citizens United was a complicated decision that did several things. The thing that's gotten the most attention is this idea that is generally expressed as corporations have free speech rights. But that turns out to be a very complicated issue. Um, media corporations are corporations. Everybody thinks they have free speech rights. So just to say, oh, corporations don't have free speech rights is really... Uh, really a, not not something most of us would want to go that far with. Now, there could be limits um, on, on corporate speech, uh, and Citizens United actually is probably most important for things, as Mike said, things that it did in a different part of campaign finance law having to do with the regulation of campaign expenditures independent of candidates' campaigns. So overturning Citizens United, it's not even clear how you'd write that constitutional amendment. And this is one of the reasons that, in my view, at least constitutional amendments simply haven't been a very important way of changing what the Constitution really is in practice in the United States. It's often very hard to figure out, in, in, with the sort of specificity you need in a constitutional amendment, what you want to do. It has to be figured out over time through an evolutionary process, usually in a series of judicial decisions or congressional action. It tries one approach, and that doesn't work, and so we go back and we modify and we try something else. And that is almost certain to be the case with campaign finance. But if we want to do something about it, we'll have to be prepared to be a little bit experimental, try some things that might work and may not work. And a constitutional amendment, which is a once-and-for-all-time sort of a very concise statement of what you want to accomplish, it's really very ill-suited to this task as it is to most other tasks, and that's why I don't see this as a, a, a serious player in the very important campaign finance issue. Interesting. Well, the question of whether to overturn Citizens United is part of a broader debate about whether to call a constitutional convention, and so far 28 states have adopted resolutions calling for a convention 
on a balanced budget amendment that's six states short of the 34 needed to invoke Article 5, and four states have passed resolutions advocating a convention to overturn the Supreme Court Citizens United ruling. Mike, 28 out of 34 is a pretty impressive number. Uh, is any any chance that a convention might actually be called for a balanced budget amendment? And um, if a convention were called, what would happen? Well, um, in the past, we've had very high numbers. I, I don't have it in front of me, but um, I think within one, two votes of, of actually getting uh, the, the requisite number, some people count them differently, and they, they actually think we went over the, the right number. Um, there's a strong reluctance on the part of Congress, certainly, and, and many people in, in general to have a constitutional um, convention. And so saying 28 out of 34 have actually signed on uh, doesn't necessarily mean that when Congress makes the determination whether or not there's been 28 out of 34, they will have the same count. So, for example, if one state calls for a convention on balanced budget and tax limitations, and a different state calls for a convention just on balanced budget, does that count as two? Or does that count as two separate states voting for two different types of conventions? Um, what you would expect to happen is that Congress, when they actually look at the, the, these calls, will, because they're not in favor of uh, a constitutional convention, because after all, that's an alternative way of amending the Constitution. If you don't have constitutional conventions, then the only way to amend the Constitution runs through the Congress. So they have a a veto unless you can go through the alternative way. Um, they will uh, have an institutional interest in narrowly determining that number. So uh, one has to be very careful and 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 uh, look at these things um, with 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 a sort of much more skeptical eye to, to actually get to the point where one would say, ah, Congress just would have no choice here. Congress would have to call a constitutional convention. So. I don't, um, when, I, when I see these lists, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about it. Um, it. Would it be possible? Certainly could be, um, although it's often said that once uh, a significant enough pe uh, number of the country are in favor of something like this, Congress acts on its own in order to prevent the constitutional convention from being called. Whether that's true or not is an interesting question. That is very interesting. All right. Well, let's. I, we've gone this far without actually reading the text. I'm going to read it now and then ask David to react to your interesting uh, suggestion. So Article 5 says, The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments. And then it talks about ratification. David, do you agree with Mike that you could have as many as 28 states calling for a convention for a balanced budget amendment, but Congress could construe the call not to require a convention to be called? Well, I think, as Mike suggested, I think he's right. There's just a lot of uncertainty in this area, and that's one of the things, Jeff, that frankly kind of scares me about it. I mean, we just don't know about a lot of things in connection with this process, which has never before been used in the history of our country. We don't know, as Mike said, whether... If some state calls for convention on one subject, another state calls for convention on another subject, do we count them both as states calling for a convention, or do we say, no, no, you're calling for different conventions? If Congress decides, well, there aren't enough states, 
is that the end of the matter? This is a decision Congress can make. Let the courts get uh, involved. Um, if there's a if states, if states go ahead and have a convention anyway, then that Congress hasn't formally called. Then what happens? Um, so I just think there's a lot of uh, a lot of sort of risk here in in pursuing this path, and we and we simply have very few guidelines. The text is not 100 percent clear, even to the extent the text says things. You have a question about who enforces the text. Is it the courts, or is it supposed to be enforced by Congress or enforced in some other means? So this whole this whole sort of move toward a convention really makes me very nervous. And then if there were a convention, the problem that a lot of people have identified is can the convention exceed the scope of the call? Could they start deciding they want to they've been called to consider a balanced budget amendment, can they propose some other amendments in addition? And then what happens? And what if those get approved by three quarters of the states? I think it's very unlikely any of this will happen, but the prospect is um, is really, I think, quite worrisome. I mean, one way to think about this is, you know, with, with the Constitution, it's a nice compact text. You can, you can hold it in a pamphlet. But if you think about what the Constitution really means in the life of our country and the lives of American uh, people, the American people, um, it's more than just that pamphlet. I mean, we've been working on this project for a couple hundred years, and we've got a lot of a lot of stuff. A lot of it very good. Some of it maybe not so good. But we've really kind of designed this very complicated, carefully thought through piece of political political institution. This piece of political machinery, if you want to think about it that way, it's been the product of, of various great people, various ordinary citizens that have contributed to this project, and to allow. Uh, a convention or a group of, of people now to kind of say, well, well, we got some ideas and we're going to mess around with this machine and um, uh, impose our own ideas on it without the very cautious process that we're used to. Of Congress has to consider it, two-thirds of both houses have to consider it, and then three-quarters of the states have to, to consider it. I actually think that you know, I think it's unlikely to happen. But were it to happen, it could easily be a recipe for disaster. Very interesting. Uh, Mike, in your article, uh, Reforming Article 5, The Problem Created by a National Convention Method and How to Fix Them, you say the strict supermajority rules of the Constitution do make it difficult to pass amendments, but that has the benefit of promoting high-quality amendments. But your solution is to add another amendment method to the Constitution to allow the state legislatures to draft an amendment when two-thirds of the state legislators approve the exact same amendment, that amendment would then be deemed formally proposed. Tell us why you think that that would be helpful, and might that make the balanced budget amendment more likely to actually get through? Right. So um, as, as, as David uh, referred to this problem, the main problem, I think, in the convention method of passing a constitutional amendment is the fear of a runaway convention. So, so what would that? What's a runaway convention? So, let's say two thirds of the states apply to Congress to call a convention on a balanced budget amendment, and then the convention meets, and some people say, you know, we're here. We get the proposed constitutional amendment. Let's forget about this balanced budget, or, or maybe yes, we'll we'll, we'll propose a balanced budget amendment. But but there's some other things that need fixing as well, and they go through some list of of whether it's school prayer or, or some, some other sort of, uh, of things that are much more divisive. And, 
states are very much worried about calling a convention and then having a situation where uh, the convention runs away from its mandate, if you will, and proposes things like this. Now, it's true that you would need three-quarters of the states, either the legislatures or, or by convention, to approve this. And so if something were not um, very sufficiently popular, it would probably be defeated, but still would require a great deal of effort to defeat uh, an amendment um, uh, of this sort. And so people are very reluctant to use this state convention method. Um, it's a real, sorry, the, the, the convention method. It's a real problem, though, not to have that, because as I said before, right now, right now Congress has a way of passing constitutional amendments that we've actually used. There's no way that we use or that works at present to amend the Constitution that goes around Congress. What that means is that we can't get institutionally um, amendments that will restrict the power of the federal government, because Congress is not going to be in favor of it. If you look at the very popular uh, amendments, or many of the amendments, which, which have been proposed in the last a uh, couple of generations, balanced budget, line item veto, congressional term limits, they're all things that Congress doesn't want. And so they're not going to be passed by Congress. It would have to go through the convention method. But as I said, the convention method has a problem of a, a runaway convention. My proposal would be to avoid the issue of um, a runaway convention um, by basically saying that the states could draft a, a particular worded amendment, um, and then that worded amendment uh, would be constituted as proposed once two-thirds of the states were in favor of it. Now, that raises issues about uh, whether or not there'd be sufficient dialogue and debate about the matter, and I have some things in the article about talking about having conventions in advance of what the states do so that these matters could be debated. Um, but the, the basic idea is to make for a more workable convention method so that the Congress doesn't have a veto on all amendments, which it should not. Thank you for that. Uh, David, in your article, The Irrelevance of Constitutional Amendments, you argue, unsurprisingly, given the excellently descriptive title, that, that the constitutional amendments are often irrelevant. And you say that the forces that bring about constitutional change work their will almost irrespective of whether and how the text of the Constitution has changed. You mention other ways constitutional change occurs, including court decisions, important legislation, or the gradual accretion of power as in the presidency during the 20th century. Tell us more about why you think that constitutional amendments are irrelevant, and is that a good thing? Well, whether it's a good thing or not, I think, is a difficult question. You have to figure out what the alternative is. But I do think it's our system. Uh, I think... Uh, in, in significant part because it is so difficult to amend the Constitution and our system, you know, like, like any organism where one channel is very difficult to go through, the organism will develop other channels to, to sustain itself and make itself thrive, and that's what our political system has done. It's developed other channels for other ways of adapting to change circumstances, change understandings, change beliefs about, about how society should be and how individuals should be treated, and those are the things that you just uh, that you just mentioned. The action by the legislature, action by the court, sometimes just changes in the culture. So I think what we have is a system in which, for the most part, 
by the time a constitutional amendment gets adopted, either it's uh, a fait accompli, society is already there at the place where the amendment is, and at, at most what the amendment does is kind of clean things up a little bit and wrap up some outliers in society that haven't quite come along, and then we might bring them along a little bit quicker. A lot of things change without an amendment, and we just live with the change. Um, if you think about the way, for example, the framers imagined the president would be chosen, they thought the electors in the Electoral College would exercise their independent judgment, that these would be members of the elite, and they would uh, choose the president. And they also thought, by the way, that a lot of times the Electoral College would not produce a majority, and Congress would choose the president. Of course, that's not the way our system looks at all. We sort of essentially have a popular vote for president with occasional flukish things, or if the popular vote is very close, it's possible for the popular vote loser to prevail. But only in a very close election, that's a big fluke. That's not at all what the parents envision. You know, there's no constitutional amendment that made that huge change in our system. It's just something that we've worked out. The other thing that, that happens is if a constitutional amendment is passed that really the society hasn't changed, then the constitutional amendment gets ignored. Um, and the best thing, if you know, if you just read our Constitution, just the text, you would see the 15th Amendment, which says you can't discriminate on the basis of race in voting. You would see the 19th Amendment, which says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex in voting. You'd say, hmm, that's interesting. They got rid of race discrimination in voting several decades before they got rid of sex discrimination in voting. That's pretty interesting. Of course, the reality is, is completely different. The 15th Amendment, after a brief period where it was effective, was essentially nullified in large parts of the country, and there was no effective uh, right to vote for African Americans until the middle of the 20th century, almost 100 years after that amendment was passed, whereas women's suffrage took hold pretty quickly and pretty uncontroversially in 1920. So that's the real process of constitutional change. And if you just look at the amendments, you will have a very, uh, at best, incomplete understanding of how we've changed, and I think really a misleading understanding. And I think, you know, groups have figured this out. Um, and most groups now, if you want, if you're upset with a Supreme Court decision on abortion or school prayer um, or something like that, you know, most groups have figured out by now the way you change is by getting legislation passed, getting judges appointed, they're trying to change, trying to get a constitutional amendment. That's not, um, that's not, uh, that, that's not the way the system actually changes. Very interesting. This is a podcast on the presidential candidates in the Constitution, so I want to focus on the question of the president's role in constitutional change. Mike, uh, in a piece called The Obama Administration, Fundamental Institutional Change and the Constitutional Lawmaking System, you say that uh, constitutionalism should constrain fundamental institutional change and therefore support the basic uh, two-thirds requirement, the supermajority requirement of the formal amendment process to a mere simple majority support for presidentially supported legislation. Uh, over, over history, how effective have presidents been in changing the Constitution without meeting that supermajority requirement? And how might a President Trump fundamentally change the Constitution without a formal amendment? Um, well, uh I mean, the, the areas where we got very significant constitutional change, the, the one that I think most people would look to first, is the uh, New Deal. And the way that you get these things, the way, the way it happens if you're not going to have it through a constitutional amendment, 
is you do it by winning elections. And um, in, in that piece, I, I talk about now that we don't have as limiting a, a constitutional uh, constitution, the Constitution is not interpreted in as limited a way as it was, let's say, in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, so there's a lot more that Congress can do. What are the real limits on constitutional change? Well, um, President Obama in 2008 had big majorities in both the Senate and the House and was able to pass some very significant legislation like the Affordable Care Act, um, Dodd-Frank reform of, of the banking system. Um, but then the Democrats had to face the voters in 2010 and were uh, very strongly rejected. Right? The, the Republicans won you know, historic numbers in the House, and that meant that no longer could the Democrats pass legislation. And we've seen really six years of after that, the president uh, trying to govern through kind of presidential power initiatives because the Congress wasn't in favor of the things he wanted to do. What President Roosevelt was able to do, by, by in contrast, was he won a big landslide in 1932, I mean, tremendous landslide. In 1934, he went before the voters again, and he continued to win. And in 1936, again, he continued to win. So... Uh, when you can win and win and win, eventually um, uh, what happens is you, you, his initial legislation was struck down. He came back with new legislation. Eventually he got court packing. That's a very complicated matter. But the, the basic point is that um, uh, if you continue to win elections, uh, that's, that's the way to do it. And I think actually one of the, the point of that, that article was one of the most important checks we now have on fundamental institutional change are the midterm elections. They're a way for the voters two years into the process to, to kind of give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to, to where the president has been uh, operating. Uh, thank you for that. I think it's such a big question. I'm going to return to the question of how President Trump might change the Constitution, but I'll ask the the broader question to David. Oh, oh, that was good. No, 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 no trouble because there there were two questions in one. David, on the on the on the broader question, you know, how much can a president change the constitution without a formal amendment? Uh, what's your thought? And if you want to fold in how a Hillary Clinton could change the constitution, that would be fine. Jeff, I, I agree with a, a lot, although not all, but a lot of what Mike said. I think. The way a president changes a constitution is by adopting policies that get widespread approval, that kind of sink into the society, and society uh, likes them, agrees with them, believes they've solved some problems, re-elects the president, or even if it doesn't re-elect the president, or even if it repudiates his political party, uh, doesn't doesn't mind what the president has done, and um, and kind of accepts it, goes along with it, and. Before you know it, it's become part of the fabric of our society, and no one would think of changing it. So if you think of some of President Roosevelt's biggest initiatives, things like Social Security, which, you know, didn't have all kinds of issues, and there were constitutional issues about it at the start, but uh, he pushed it through, it got adopted, and now it's sacrosanct, and might as well be in the Constitution as far as the difficulty of getting, getting rid of it. And I think lots of things, to some degree or another, are like that. I think the question for President Clinton, Jeff, is a very interesting one, because it raises an issue about whether we really are living in different times today from what we've had in the recent past. 
And if so, whether the various institutions, the government, and particularly the Supreme Court, will adjust to those different times. What I have in mind is this. Um, the parties are polarized to an extent they haven't been for many decades. Um, there are some various explanations for why that happened, that, that the existence of a, of a really a segregationist wing in the Democratic Party and of liberal Republicans kept party, party ideologies much more fluid, and that fluidity has now disappeared. And the other, the other dynamic here is uh, that at least some political scientists will say the Democrats have a built-in demographic advantage in presidential years. Republicans have a built-in demographic advantage in elections in all years, and specifically in elections to the House of Representatives, just because of various happenstances of demography and geography. Just one reason I would disagree a bit with what Mike said about midterm elections. But to the extent that's true... If we're in a long-term situation where presidents are going to be uh, butting heads against a Congress that simply will not go along with what the president wants because the president wants it, and they think there is a partisan advantage to denying the president's success. And if that's the system we're in, then the question will be, well, are we going to open the doors to more aggressive executive action? Uh, and that question it will be a question for the White House, it will be a question for Congress, it will also be an important question for the Supreme Court, whether it thinks the rules of the game have changed, and on issues we now have to allow the president more latitude than we used to. Of course, the president could be repudiated, the new president could be elected, Congress can do various things to stymie the president. But I think that is going to be one of the looming constitutional issues if there is a Clinton administration for sure, and maybe even beyond that about whether we're now in a new configuration of political parties and executive versus legislative relations where we are going to see at least pressure and maybe successful pressure toward significant expansions of the power of the executive branch. Thank you for that. Uh, Mike, let me return to that question of how much a President Trump could change the Constitution. Uh, Eric Posner, uh, not long ago in June, wrote an op-ed for The New York Times and if elected, what President Trump could or couldn't do, in which he argues that Trump would have significant discretion within our constitutional system to uh, order immigration authorities to deport unauthorized immigrants, bar Muslims from entering the country, uh, slap tariffs on China, and so forth. So Posner seemed to suggest that the president could wield executive power in significant ways, like his predecessors. Do you believe that that would allow... Uh, a President Trump to effectively change the Constitution or not, and how? Well, um, there's a couple of issues sort of worked work in there. Sort of, can could would a president have a lot of policymaking um, ability? And under our regime now, both um, delegations from Congress as well as assertions of a presidential power by the presidents themselves, um, as as uh, Eric Posner says, there's there's a lot of discretion that any president would have, whether it was President Trump, President Clinton. Uh, um, so, so that that's in terms of uh, policy making. Um, would he have the ability to change the Constitution? Um, well, uh, the the main way in which uh, a President Trump, and I'm assuming you know he he's not if he wins at all, he's not winning a landslide. He, he's winning a a close election. Uh, the main way that a president of that sort can can have an impact on the, the meaning of the Constitution um, is by appointing judges. So 
So uh, if he gets a couple of forms and, he, and whoever the next president will be, he'll get certainly one right away. Um, that'll be a, a significant impact. Will uh, his changes, um, proposals to, to, to do uh, things through executive power have the effect of changing the Constitution? Uh, I don't think so, unless they become very popular and there's an endorsement of it. Even if a president takes an action and it turns out that there's no judicial review of the action, the, the political system, the, the press and the like, the, the popular uh, public gets to react to that. And, and if you take actions that are divisive, that are seen to, to um, uh, weaken your standing with, with, with the population, that hurts the party and it tends to force presidents to back down a bit. So um, there are checks in the system for, for what presidents can do. Um, it all depends on how popular they are and uh, how big an election they win and the initiatives that they promote, whether or not they're, they're popular. So I think um, unless uh, President Trump is very popular, um, most of what he would be able to do, he could only do through uh, appointments to the Supreme Court. Great. Well, it is time... Uh gentlemen, for closing arguments. Um, David, should the president have a greater or lesser power to affect constitutional change? And if Hillary Clinton is elected, would the Constitution change and how? Jeff, I think that in a way, I don't, don't mean to be sort of petty-fogging and professorial and annoying about this, but in a way, it depends on what you mean by the Constitution. If you mean the text of the Constitution, for reasons that Mike and I have discussed, almost certainly not. Now, if you mean the Constitution in practice, what what really what really how really the Constitution works in our politics and our society? Um, yes, I think it would. I think it would change. I think it would change partly in the directions that I mentioned in my last answer, and toward an expansion of presidential power, especially if President Clinton is confronted with a Congress that. Um, that that uh, blocks her initiatives. Um, I think issues about national security are going to be with us uh, for a long time, and those issues tend to, when those issues arise, the effect tends to be to increase the power of the president because the president's in so much better a position to deal with those issues. People look to the president to resolve those issues. The president has the intelligence agencies, has the military that can deal with those issues, or law enforcement agencies that can deal with those issues. So when those issues become paramount, that tends to accumulate power in the president. That's been true um, almost since the beginning, certainly since the Civil War, and very much so in the 20th and 20th and 21st centuries. So I think all of those forces, which I, I think will be forces, will tend to uh, increase the power of the executive. Now, is it a good idea? I think in the abstract, that's a very difficult question to answer. And, of course, when you see a lot of times is whether people think it's a good idea. It depends on whether they like who the president is or whether they like what the president um, is doing. I, I will say I think it is inevitable. I, I think that the trend has been almost throughout our history, certainly, as I've said, for the last several decades at least, the trend has been toward the accumulation of power in the executive. There are lots of obvious reasons for that, the superior knowledge of the executive, the maneuverability and minimalness of the executive. The fact the world has become much more fast-moving, become much more interconnected, and as the president who has access to the, to, to the uh, diplomatic apparatus and to foreign leaders. So 
I, I, I think it is inevitable that we will see that. I think it could easily be accelerated if we have a President Clinton who makes appointments to the Supreme Court and a Congress that treats President Clinton the way the Republican Congress treated President Obama, basically, if he's going to go along with, with uh, his initiatives, uh, in my view, just because they were his initiatives, I realize that's controversial. Um, so I, I think it would, it would, if anything, be accelerated as far as the abstract nature of the, of the power on President Clinton. President Trump, I think, would also exercise lots of power in the ways he is, and might even might just discuss in, in ways that I, that I frankly would be very uh, distressed by. But as far as the abstract power of the president, I would, I would see that, I would see the trend being uh, toward increasing. And as I said, whether it's good or bad, um, uh, you know, I think it's inevitable. Wonderful. Mike, last word to you. Uh, should the president have a greater or lesser role in affecting constitutional change? And w- you know, what's your final conclusion to those who say that a President Trump could fundamentally transform the Constitution? Would he be constrained by uh, the existing constitutional structure from doing that? Um, well, my, my first point about whether or not a president should have a lot of power with respect to constitutional change is I think that presidents should not. In fact, I think constitutional change ought to follow the method that's written in the Constitution. I actually agree that our practice has, uh, since, let's say, the New Deal, at least, uh, has to a very significant extent not done that. But I actually think it would be a good thing if the constitutional change we had in the country uh, was supported by a consensus. There's still a lot of room for legislation within the, the parameters of the Constitution, uh, so things can be tried out. But we want only to have constitutional change where, where there's a consensus. I actually think some of the, the polarization we have is the result of, of the Supreme Court taking these issues on its own and uh, moving in uh, a far direction in one, one side or the other, whereas a constitutional amendment would require um, compromise. In fact, I <clears throat> we don't have time to go through it, but I, I would say actually when the court steps in and updates the Constitution through um, uh, judicial interpretation, if you will, then that makes it extremely difficult to get constitutional amendments because uh, you only get a constitutional amendment when there's a consensus. If the court steps in before there's a consensus, then the change happens through the court acting not through the constitutional amendment process, which would involve compromises and, and, and the like. Um, <clears throat> a President Trump, um, it's hard to know how a President Trump would actually govern. Um, I think uh, perhaps more than, than a lot of candidates, President Trump, uh, uh, um, Donald Trump um, uh, says various things. It, it's hard to predict whether the things he says would actually... Um, uh, he'd go ahead with them, he'd change his mind, uh, he'd constrain them. But assuming that, that uh, um, as, as, as some people are apt to do, um, to, to take the most um, controversial things that he, he says he wants to do, <clears throat> and if he were to go and implement them, then I think there would be tremendous pushback in the country. Right? There, there's... Um, there's, there's a press and, and a media who would be very much opposed to a lot of what he wants to do. Um, there would be um, uh, 
lots of members of Congress. So, so the politics of the situation would be such that that if if what he would if he were to take very controversial actions, they would be seen as as problematic. The Republicans would lose tremendously in the midterm elections. Um, that would put a real damper on on what he was trying to do, and might, unless he changed his ways, uh, lead to a one-term presidency. Uh, does that mean that uh, his actions wouldn't have significant effects for a period of time? Certainly not. They, they, they would. But would there be checks in the process? And if he were seen as unpopular, um, that would prevent uh, um, him from really changing the Constitution in some significant fundamental way? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike Rappaport and David Strauss, for an illuminating and engaging discussion of the presidential candidates and constitutional change. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, check out the Interactive Constitution app for the Article 5 essay, which should post soon. I'll just tease you with that. I'm not sure exactly. I guess it'll post when you guys get in your separate explainers. So hurry up and get to work because people are eager to read them. Um, It'll be as riveting as this excellent debate was. Mike, David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. If you want to know what you think of the podcast, email us, editor at constitutioncenter.org, or me, Jay Rosen, at constitutioncenter.org, or Nicandro, who's sitting right here cracking up, and Iannacci at constitutioncenter.org. It's not figure, it's not hard to figure out our email addresses. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, this is the serious part, ladies and gentlemen. And you know, this is not just a membership pitch. It's a it's a plea for you to get engaged. If you love the podcast, I want you to be part of the Constitution Center family. You can give as little as you like, but just sign up and become a member because we are a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. You, our great We the People listeners, are part of our Constitution Center family, and I want you to become members today. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.